Well, turn with me, please, this morning to Romans chapter 14 once again. Romans chapter 14, we can continue our study through a great book and great section of the book. Romans chapter 14, it was mentioned during the Sunday School, we've had the privilege of admitting new members recently to our fellowship, and so we wanted to give an official uh, welcome to Mike and Mary Russell, as well as Miss Edith, uh, as new members of our church here uh, at Roebuck, very grateful for them. Uh, they professed their faith before the session. They're members of a PCA church before, so they're able simply to transfer their letter here, and we welcome them uh, in the Lord's name. Just grateful. Grateful you're here. So when we're all done today, if you want to stand with me at the back, then people can shake your hand if they haven't had a chance to, uh, to do so yet. Brian will probably be back there as well, so it'll be a nice party there in the narthex uh, when we're all done today. But Romans chapter 14, let me read this morning from the second half of the chapter. Once again, we'll only wade into the verses that I read today. But let's go ahead and read Romans 14, verses 13 through 23. Here now, God's word. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once again. Father in heaven, be our teacher this morning. Send us the Spirit to open our eyes that they'll focus on, lock our vision on the Lord Jesus Christ, and give us the wisdom to know how to take this word and to live this out in our church, in our homes, in our communities, and bearing your image to others in the world. Help us in this task, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4 contains a well-known conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. The woman is a Samaritan, and Jesus strikes up a conversation with her as he and the disciples travel through Samaria. And all parts of that scenario are unusual for Jews. And at the very beginning of the conversation, the woman picks up on this. She's shocked that Jesus, a Jew, would speak to her. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In fact, they often avoided traveling through that area of their land to avoid pollution. So a ritual contamination, so to speak. 
But part of God's mission, and this is what Jesus is telling this woman, part of God's mission is to bring all people to Jesus. And so Jesus traveled through Samaria and spoke to this woman. I need to go there. I have people there. And as Jesus speaks to her and as his character becomes more evident and his abilities as a prophet, much more than that, but not less, as as his prophetic abilities come through, well, she turns the conversation towards matters of worship. And she has a question about appropriate worship. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain here in Samaria. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is down there in Jerusalem. So you're a prophet. Give me your take on this religious controversy. And Jesus, with the wisdom that always drives his answers to these questions, says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. Jesus anticipates a day, a day that is already dawning in his ministry when worship will not be determined by geography or nationality, but loyalty to the Father. And all, everyone, both groups, whether Jews, Gentiles, or Samaritans, or more, all who worship God in spirit and in truth, those are the true worshipers worshiping God together. And friends, I tell that story because it's that vision directly from the Lord Jesus that drives Paul's instructions here in Romans 14 and 15. He is animated by this vision of all nations worshiping God together. And in order to keep that, in order to make that happen and to keep it happening, he speaks to these two groups, the strong and the weak. And he admonishes them, as we've already seen, to accept one another without quarreling over disputable matters. Divisions that probably break down somewhat along ethnic lines. Not 100%, but probably mostly. Conscientious Jewish believers who would abstain from forbidden meat and observe various holy days versus the majority Gentile believers who don't have scruples about those matters. Paul doesn't want to see the church or the churches divided along ethnic lines. And furthermore, Paul doesn't want to see the church divided by scruples, scruples that pertain even to life and worship. If God regulated the diet of his people in the Old Testament, he no longer does so in the New Testament. And in fact, if someone were to make that mandatory, that would threaten the gospel. Israel's calendar, it had several required feast days and observances that are no longer present in this era. Now, if some want to still observe them for reasons of conscience, that's fine. But they should not judge those who do not. And those whose conscience is not bound by these matters should not look down on those whose conscience is. And those are the ideas that Paul introduces to heal this division in the church. They're good ideas, ideas, ideals that the church should strive to fulfill. So, how do you do that when the church must come together for various 
common activities. I mean, it's one thing to live out these ideas in isolation from one another. But what do we do when we come together for united worship, for unified worship, the kind Jesus calls us to? Is it okay to divide along these lines? Or perhaps should one group fully accommodate the other? Neither of those solutions work. And neither of them respects the grace of the gospel. And so Paul keeps pushing into this issue today. He wants to get us to think now about how our decisions affect one another. He's talked about accepting one another. Now, building on that, how do our decisions affect one another? How can we respect our own consciences and the consciences of others? What are the big principles that should drive your decisions when it comes to disputable matters? Those are the things Paul will answer in this passage as he continues to show us how the gospel heals our divisions in the church. Now today we're going to look at one more way, a fourth way in the whole list we've been considering, and it will mainly be in verses 13 to 15. It's a little wordy. I just couldn't get this any shorter that that pleased me, but it's there in the bulletin if you need it for your notes. Here's the idea. The gospel heals our divisions by emphasizing that our love and service towards others matter most in the church. What's the big idea? What, What should matter more than anything else in the church? Paul says our love and service toward others. Now, Paul states that big idea in verse 13. He'll spend the rest of the passage kind of filling out the details, and then he'll circle back around and restate the main idea. But verse 13 gives us the big idea. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother Or sister. Now there's a play on words here that's lost in most translations. Paul is essentially saying, stop judging each other. That's what I just spoke to you about. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Judge this. Evaluate this. How you can avoid harming one another. Well, how might we harm one another? Paul uses two words or phrases to picture that. The word stumbling block, they mean exactly what they sound like. Something you might trip over when you're walking or running. Something that causes you to stumble or fall. Some kind of block or rock. And Paul uses it as a symbol. A picture of spiritual downfall. What might cause spiritual downfall? We'll get to that. The second word, obstacle, is very similar. It refers to a trap or a snare. And both of these words are often used in context of battle. Together, the two pictures communicate this idea of matters that might cause a believer to stray from their commitment to God. The strong should avoid acting in such a way that could cause the spiritual ruin of the weak, that could cause the weak to stray. The strong can act in such a way that they cause the weak to make decisions that are spiritually harmful for them. I know there's a lot packed in that. Today will be to, to try to bring all that, bring some image and definition to all that. 
What Paul doesn't do in this passage is tell us exactly how that can happen. But I think we can at least sketch a picture of the situation based on what he does say. So first, look at verse 14. Paul writes, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. Now, I've mentioned this last week. Paul doesn't do a good job of hiding his view on this issue of clean and unclean foods. He says right here, nothing is unclean in itself. And he is following Jesus' lead, who said, Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. So Paul says, I know there's no such thing before God as an unclean food. But at the same time, Paul says, If anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person... It is unclean. If your conscience tells you this food is unclean, ceremonially defiled, you shouldn't eat it or it will defile you, then don't eat it. For you, at this moment, it is unclean. And you should never do something that your conscience tells you is wrong. Skip down for a minute to verse 23. Paul, what he writes there sheds light on what we just read. Uh, Verse 23 reads, But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, when Paul uses the word faith here, he probably means it in the sense of confidence. If you're that's not the normal meaning for faith, but it works here. If you're not confident, that eating this food is pleasing to God. If you don't have faith that this pleases God, if you doubt that it pleases God, then eating it is sin. Anything that doesn't come from the place of confidence that this pleases God is sin, and you shouldn't do it. Now, this does not mean that you have to remain perpetually in a place of worry and doubt about what you do. That the controlling idea for your life should be, if anything makes me uncomfortable, I'm just always going to avoid it. No. What did Paul say at the beginning of verse 14? I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul once avoided foods. He changed his view. Why? Because of what Jesus taught him, what he learned from the record of Christ. So Jesus gives us truth that informs our conscience. So if you're wondering about whether something is pleasing to God, the scriptures will give you wisdom. They will not give you an exhaustive list of do's and don'ts written for the 21st century, but they will give you wisdom on how to make decisions about disputable matters that are pleasing to God. It will help inform you of what you can and can't do with a good conscience. So you should, as a believer, inform your conscience with truth. That's just a habit you should cultivate as you pray and seek God and the Word. But here's the thing. As that process plays out, you should respect your conscience. You should wait for it to be informed by the Word and never go against it. 
Now, again, you may ask, okay, but why? Why is it such a big deal to go against my conscience, especially in an area where Paul says, objectively, he knows, it's not wrong. Okay, again, reading between the lines a little bit, I think we can fill this out. Paul is saying we should respect our conscience because it's a God-given device to you that approves or disapproves of certain actions, and you shouldn't ignore that device. Why? When you ignore it, you damage it. Listen to two other verses that make that point. Earlier in Romans, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 15, They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. These are Gentiles, Paul describes, who don't have God's law in written form. But they testify to the existence of God's law on their hearts when they do and don't do certain actions. So everyone has some sense of right and wrong. And when you do right, your conscience approves you. When you do wrong, your conscience condemns you. Now compare that with what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Here Paul refers to those whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You familiar with that phrase? Here are a group of people whose consciences no longer work. They no longer disapprove of the wrong actions and approve of the right actions. Why? Because they've resisted it so much, it no longer operates. So you can think of your conscience like a dimmer switch on a light. It's not just on-off, it's bright to less light. Well, every time you resist your conscience, that dimmer switch goes down. Every time you fail to listen to that warning, it gets a little dimmer. And the more you ignore it, the dimmer light it shines. I had a friend once, he, his check engine light kept coming on, so he put a piece of tape over it so he wouldn't see it. That's not the point, but he was trying to shield himself from the warning. That's what we do when we ignore our conscience. So, so put all this together. I know I'm giving you a lot this morning. I feel like I'm just spraying the fire hose, but, but try to tie it all together to make sense. You think of your conscience like a dimmer switch. Okay, you put this all together. You can think of your conscience as a monitor, and God has given it to you. He's given it to everybody to approve and disapprove of certain actions. Now, as we've already seen, it's not perfect. It doesn't equal the Holy Spirit or the Bible. Your conscience can accuse you when God does not. Think of the weak here in Romans. They couldn't eat the meat with a good conscience, but God allowed it. Your conscience can accuse you when God does not. Maybe a memory of a past sin to get into a more serious era that that God has forgiven, and yet your conscience accuses you. So your conscience can be wrong. Your uh, conscience can accuse you when, when you're in the good. Your conscience can approve when God does not. So think of the people whose consciences were seared with a hot iron. And who knows what areas of life as you walk with God, he will bring to your mind as you go through life. Things you never thought about. 
But now think about them with reference to the Lord. Consciences aren't perfect. But nevertheless, there's something God has given to help us, and we should not ignore it. To go against your conscience is sin. We warn people about following their feelings. I think that's good advice. But there is a gut instinct that God can also give you, and you would be foolish to completely resist it. You should teach it with truth, and you should never ignore it. And here is why all of that's a big deal. This is what's underneath everything Paul says here. In verse 15, Paul writes, If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. The way the strong act about disputable matters can cause the weak to suffer spiritual harm. Here's the last background I'll stretch. I think we'll kind of tie everything together. Maybe you've been reading this passage and you're wondering, what is the situation where this is happening? You know, what's the background here or the context for Paul's instructions? Because you may be wondering, how does that translate into our life where there's much more awareness of what people do through social media or other avenues? Okay, what's the background? Well, with all that Paul says about food throughout this chapter, it sounds like a common meal may have been the setting for these disputes. We know that the early Christians often worshipped and shared meals together, that the two often followed one another. Think of Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians about the Lord's table. So Paul talks a lot here about food. In the next chapter, he will talk about unified worship. It sounds like Paul is describing a situation where the church would come together for worship and then share a meal together. It was in those contexts where the strong would act in a way that caused distress for the weak. And here's probably what they did. At those meals, the strong were probably not providing a kosher option for the weak. The weak were probably, as I've already said, for the most part, Jewish. There was a strong Jewish population in Rome. But the emperor Claudius had, in recent history, expelled the Jews from Rome. They were allowed to return a few years later. When the Jewish Christians returned to their city and their church, they found a church that had become majority Gentile. And these Gentiles were not interested in accommodating the dietary scruples of their fellow believers. But what do you do if you have a conscientious objection to eating meat, but that's the only option at the church meal? You either go hungry or you sin against your conscience. And that is what Paul does not want the weak to do. And so he tells the strong, do not put pressure on the weak to sin against their conscience. Provide an atmosphere where they can follow their conscience before God and don't look down on them as they do so. Now we could have a few different reactions to that. On the one hand, we could say, hey, 
That's good advice. In fact, let's go one more step. Let's make this easy, folks. Let's just go all the way and never serve meat that the weak don't like. Let's all give up meat for the sake of the weak. I mean, we don't want anyone to be upset if they know we do things they don't agree with. That, that would be a nice, clean solution. Paul doesn't say that. How do we know? Because of what we said in the previous passage. The strong must not despise the weak, and the weak must not judge the strong. You see, the weak can't weaponize their conscience and use it to control the behavior of others. Both groups must accept one another. But as we move into this passage from the other side of the equation, we do see Paul laying an obligation on the strong to provide an environment where the weak can flourish spiritually. They should not be pressured to sin against their conscience. And they shouldn't feel like they have to avoid worship and fellowship meals because there are no options for them. If they do, then you are causing a weak brother distress. And not only that, you are risking their spiritual harm. At the end of verse 15, Paul writes, Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. I think this plays into the idea of the dimmer switch. If someone is pressured to sin against their conscience and they do so, then for them it is sin, and you have started them on a bad path. The more they sin against their conscience, the more they blunt a tool God has given them to help them obey. And Paul says here, you could put them on a path that leads to them falling away from the faith. And maybe that causes a struggle. Well, But it's their fault. They're making a bad decision. They'll give an account. It's just like what Jesus said. People will give an account for their actions, but woe to those who cause them to stumble. It would be better if they had never, or I think this is the millstone tied around the neck and thrown into the sea. People give an account, but woe to those who push them down that path. So friends, this is serious business. I know it sounds like we're just talking about food. But Paul says the kind of environment you provide in your church, it affects people spiritually. And for Paul, the guiding principle was not my rights, my freedom, but love for one another. Again, verse 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. What matters in the church that we place people on a higher level than we place ourselves? Paul says that's what matters when you gather for worship. So each of us will have our own temptations when it comes to following Paul's counsel. For the strong, sometimes it's just really hard, isn't it, to respect other people's scruples. I mean, their beliefs just seem so silly, and you want to say, hey, you're basing that on a wrong belief. Well, Maybe their belief is wrong, but their distress is real. And their distress is real because to them, their beliefs are right. And so providing an environment where they can flourish is the priority of the church. For the weak, maybe it's really hard for you to see people be so dismissive of issues that are very important to you. 
As far as the weak were concerned, the strong were being cavalier about obeying God. The strong were doing things that were associated with paganism. This isn't hype, friends. People in Israel's history sacrificed and died for these issues. Over eating proper food, Jewish identity, observing God's required holy days, people died for it. And Paul can come along and say, oh, I know, I've listened to Jesus. Nothing is unclean in itself. That's two groups that have a lot of work to do, don't they? To accept one another. But that's the counsel God, that Paul gives and that God gives because that's the mission God is pursuing here in the kingdom of his son. So let's give thanks for that and let's just pray for his wisdom and help. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you again for the word of God. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would come and model this of valuing others to the point of dying because that's what it took to save us and to put your world to rights to start that process and to become king. Thank you that, God, you vindicated your son. You've shown us that's the path that leads to victory. So help us to follow it as well. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for when we don't. Forgive us for when we're proud. Forgive us for when we sin against you or others. And just give us the wisdom to know what this looks like in our lives and the life of our church. And we will give you our thanks and praise for what you do to make us healthy, to heal these divisions. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in closing hymn 642. Be thou my vision, hymn 642. We'll just sing the first, second, and last verse. 642, stand with me please, first, second, and last.